Life on Jesus, a devotional study by Melva Perkis. Book 2. The Background of the Ministry. Chapter 1. A Restless People. While Jesus is striding out towards the Jordan Valley, we shall pause to examine the men and women among whom he was about to work, and the atmosphere prevailing in Israel during these momentous days. We do not need to leave the pages of the Gospels to realise that the general temper of the people was one of discontent and vague expectancy. The fact that enthusiastic crowds tried to take Jesus in Galilee and later led him triumphantly into Jerusalem betrays a discontent with the political powers that were shaping their lives. The fact that crowds went out first to John and later to Jesus from every city and village of Judea and Galilee is startling evidence of the dissatisfaction with which those who were responsible for the religious life of the people were viewed. Luke's comment that the people were in expectation and that all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, suggests the air of expectancy that prevailed in the land. But we must look more carefully into this matter. Our understanding of many of the words and actions of Jesus is increased enormously by a knowledge of the conditions of the men and women among whom he worked, the motives of those who had authority over them, and the influence for good or evil which they exercised in their lives. The greatest single factor responsible for the growing discontent in the land was the economic strain under which the people lived. When Herod the Great was given the throne as a reward for the assistance he had offered the Romans in the conquest of the land, he undertook an enormous building programme. Cities grew rapidly under his energetic hand. Breakwaters stretched out into the sea at strategic points along the harbour-less coasts. Public works were not neglected, while the erection and restoration of temples and monuments proclaimed his patronage of Greek culture. To placate the indignant Jews for this violation of their most sensitive loyalty, he began the rebuilding of their own temple on a most lavish scale. This last work was the most ambitious of all. It was commenced before Jesus was born, and was not completed until long after his ascension, so that each time he visited the temple he would see the labourers at work in some part of the huge building. Whilst this great undertaking in Jerusalem did much to divert attention from the more profane activities of the Idumean ruler, another factor was introduced, when heavy taxes had to be levied to meet the expenditure. These taxes were increased by the sumptuous luxury of Herod's court, and the liberal bribes he paid to Rome in an effort to retain his popularity there. When Herod died, he left the nation impoverished. 
the Jews unsuccessfully asked Rome to be allowed self-government. Palestine was divided among Herod's sons. Archelaus was made tetrarch of Judea, Samaria and Adjumea, Antipas tetrarch of Galilee, and Philip tetrarch of Trachonitis, and Ituria. Uh, Ituria is a footnote, a, a, a tetrarchy in the Roman Empire, was a fourth part of a province. As only three tetrarchs were appointed at this time in Palestine, it would seem that the term was used somewhat loosely. To go back to the text. Archelaus was a failure and his tyrannies became unbearable. After ten years' rule, the Jews sent an urgent petition to Rome asking to have him removed and demanding either self-government or direct Roman control through a procurator. This latter was granted. Archelaus was deposed and in AD 6 Quirinus, translated by the authorised version in Luke 2 as Cyrenius, was appointed first Roman governor. However great the advantages of direct Roman rule may have been, the arrangement carried with it financial responsibilities unwelcome to the people with a legacy of heavy commitments. Roman taxes were not crushing in themselves, the conquerors were too wise for that, but to a nation which contributed so generously towards its religious organisations they were a heavy addition which made the burden all but intolerable. Unlike Rome's other subject nations, Israel was, in spite of centuries of disobedience and punishment, still God's people. Her policies and her laws, her sanctions and her punishments, all emanated from the temple at Jerusalem. The people's money went towards the upkeep of the temple and to the increasing affluence of the high priestly families. They made heavy demands covering almost every activity of life, from the half-shekel temple payment to the tithe on cattle and crops, and even such negligible things as Anais and Cumin were not excluded. Every first-born child was a financial liability to its parents and an asset to the priests, while the frequent feasts and offerings all levied their toll, in addition to taxes for the maintenance of the local synagogue and the support of the poor. The Roman authorities had little sympathy with Jewish appeals for a reduction in their imperial taxes. In any case, the system was too impersonal for that. In practice, Rome simply sold the potential taxation assets of Palestine to publicani in the city, who in turn hired agents in the land itself, often Jews, to collect them. Both publicani and local collectors were only interested in making as much money as possible for themselves out of the arrangement and the Roman authorities were not interested in the, the extortions made or the methods used to enforce them. True, the embittered taxpayer could appeal to the Roman procurator, but he, knowing the national weakness, 
would in all probability point out that they were only paying for their own protection and comfort. They had no army to support. Rome was providing that. And they were using the roads, the viaducts and the water supplies also maintained by Rome. Under their Idumean kings, the roads had been infested with robbers. Now, with the steady patrolling of Roman soldiers, things were improving, and eventually the dangers would be eliminated. But these things had to be paid for. If the prospect was so difficult, why pay such heavy taxes to members of their own community? What could the temple authorities show for the money they received? which could remotely compare with the facilities Rome offered. Such would be the arguments of the Roman officials, and the Jews would have little they could reasonably say against them. They could not tell the Romans that to withhold taxes from the Sadducees would be equivalent to robbing God. It was equally impossible for them to seek relief from the Sadducees, whose horror would know no bounds at the thought of the Jews suggesting any alleviation from their sacred financial obligations. Faced with the cold decrees of Rome and the challenge of their conscience concerning their loyalty to God, the Jews had no alternative but to submit to the heavy demands made upon them. Their resources dwindled until many found it increasingly difficult to purchase any but the barest necessities of life. Added to this economic tension was another factor with a direct bearing upon it. Many of the Jews in the rural areas of Palestine, particularly in Galilee, earned their livelihood by tilling the soil and fishing. Their prosperity depended as much upon their success in finding a good market as upon their skill. With the development of Roman culture and the introduction of Roman methods and practices, it became possible for the rich landowners, both in Palestine and the neighbouring countries, to employ slave labour. This meant that the Jewish smallholder was faced with serious competition. Gradually all but the most prosperous were forced out of business and had to be content with a very meagre existence. Some of the less responsible characters formed parties and went off into the mountains to rob passing travellers. Sporadic rebellions broke out from time to time, but they were efficiently dealt with, and the only evidence they left were homes which sheltered weeping women and hard-faced men. But all classes became bitter, until their extreme poverty and desperate anger eventually lit the flame of insurrection against the Roman authority. But the relentless power of the legions crushed their proud spirits into pathetic submission. Jesus saw this dark day ahead, but at the time of his ministry, the situation, although getting worse year by year, was not desperate. The economic background could not, however, be ignored, and the temptation to make stones into bread reached beyond the alleviation of his own hunger. When a year or so later he fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes, the response was immediate. 
The people tried to take him by force to make him king. One of the features of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount was an exhortation to his hearers not to be anxious about these daily hardships, but to realise that they would be cared for by their loving Father, who feeds the fowls and gives beauty to the lilies. It is easier for us to respond to his exhortations to take no anxious thought for the morrow than it was for many of those who heard him. When we appreciate the strain of living and the fading hopes of the Jews among whom Jesus walked, we are able to see much of his teaching in a new light. We can understand why so many of his parables had to do with money. We can see the sombre importance of men standing idle in the marketplace all day because no man had hired them. We are not perplexed by the woman who, finding a coin of small value that was lost, sends for her neighbours to share her joy, or by the man who had to go to his friend in the middle of the night to borrow bread for an unexpected guest. The urgency of the petition in the prayer Jesus taught his disciples becomes poignant. Give us this day our daily bread. These conditions were a hindrance to Jesus in his ministry. When anxiety and despair reign in people's hearts, they're not usually disposed to give much heed to moral and spiritual teaching. When, however, that teaching is accompanied by gifts which even temporarily banish the anxiety, there is a human tendency to clamour for it, and Jesus was under no delusion. After the miraculous feeding at Bethsaida Julius, he said, Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labour not for the meat which perisheth. When Jesus turned from the material blessings and insisted upon the fundamental truths of his identity and mission, many were offended and walked no more with him. That was an experience which was to be perpetuated down the centuries. The history of the Christian Church was to show, sometimes in most perplexing and disturbing ways, that without the abiding influence of Jesus, the fleshly mind will always be stronger than the spiritual mind. Though many will follow him into the deserts for the loaves and the fishes, only a comparatively small company will respond to his deeper call to fellowship. But to those few come their Lord's assurance. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever.